Fine, let's look together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. The gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this, his word? Father, we are thankful uh, that you are a God who's not hidden or silent, but a God who delights to make himself known. And we thank you that you have done this um, in your word, by your spirit. And ultimately, you've done that in the person and work of Jesus. And so it is our prayer that you would come to us. And that you uh, would show us lovely things about yourself in this, your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you think about rivalries, uh, rivals are a part of almost every aspect of our lives. I mean, if you think about sports, the sports world, there's uh, Tennessee uh, versus Florida. Uh, If you think about politics, 
Uh, there are Republicans versus Democrats. If you think about politics on a global scale, it used to be, uh, you know, um, America versus the Russians. Uh, now it seems to be America versus the world. Uh, when we work out, uh, it's Powerade versus Gatorade. If you go to Mass General, it's North Face versus Patagonia. If you go uh, to the Fellini Kroger to get uh, peanut butter, it's Jif versus Peter Pan. If you go to work, the, uh, in every workplace, there's a Jim and a Dwight. Uh, the Crips have the Bloods. Uh, Hamilton had Burr. Um, and so there are rivals, right, all around. And even when we come to Christmas and we watch our favorite Christmas movies, even those movies that are supposed to be all warm and fuzzy, there are often rivals uh, that are uh, at war with one another. For instance, uh, in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Mr. Potter is trying to destroy his rival, George Bailey. If you think about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, Rudolph finds himself in conflict with Bumble, the abominable snow monster. If you think about Elf, right, Buddy is having to battle the lack of Christmas spirit. Uh, for all of us who love the Christmas prince, uh, you'll remember Simon, who is trying to steal the throne from his cousin, who is lovely and beautiful, Richard. Uh, if you think about the movie Die Hard, right, John McClane is at war with Hansi Baby Gruber. And then if you think about Gremlins, right, uh, Stripe is at war with Gizmo. Right, rivals are everywhere, and they're even in our Christmas stories, and they're even in the passage that we just read. There's this rivalry that is at work. Herod, the king of the Jews, is threatened by the birth, this newborn baby, this Jesus, who is king of the Jews. And you see this in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And so what we see here is that there are these two kings. There is in verse 1, 3, and 9, Herod, who is king of the Jews. And then these wise men, these people, they show up in Jerusalem, which is the capital of the kingdom of Herod. And they start talking about this child who's been born, who is the king of the Jews. And we learn then in verse 3 that Herod is then troubled. Herod's undone. He's threatened by the possibility that there might be another king who has been born. He's threatened by the possibility that maybe God's word has been fulfilled and maybe this promised eternal king has actually arrived. And so he's frustrated. He's troubled, as the text says. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think about this rivalry between humanity and God. Who will win? Who will be the king? And so as we think about this rivalry, I think it would be important for us to do it in two ways. We'll think first about a rival's heart, and then we'll think about the heart of the rival, right? A rival's heart, and then the heart of the rival. So two points, a rival heart, the rival's heart. First, a rival heart. When you look at Herod, uh, Herod's heart is totally, totally turned in on itself. And from a psychological perspective, Herod seems to be a classic narcissist. And if you've ever engaged with a narcissist, you know that at first they're incredibly likable. They are charismatic. Uh, they are charming until they kill you. 
And that's what Herod was like. Herod was a little bit of everyone. I mean, racially, he was an Arab. Religiously, he was a Jew. Culturally, he was a Greek. Politically, he was a Roman. And like most narcissists, he was incredibly successful. I mean, he's a king. And he then smoothed uh, Caesar Augustus to retain his king, uh, or his crown, his kingdom. And then he was an accomplished king of Israel. We usually think of him in this passage, and he's evil. But he was also incredibly accomplished uh, for, as a king. He built theaters throughout uh, Israel. He built cities and palaces and fortresses. And uh, he built his own beautiful palace in Jericho. He built a fortress in a city that he called Herodium after himself. And he was responsible even for the restoration of the, of the temple that was in Jerusalem. And people called it Herod's Temple. And everything that he did, all of his accomplishments and all of his successes were for his own power. They were for his own glory and for his own honor. And everyone who was in his orbit was supposed to get not only with the program, they were supposed to get with his program or else he would kill them. Uh, Diane Lehnberg, uh, speaking about narcissism in a tweet, she wrote this, a narcissist demands that you reflect back to them the image of themselves as being all that they say they are and all that they want to be. And God help you if you don't. Right? That's what a narcissist does. And so they see everyone as a threat to them. And so everyone is potentially someone that they must kill. And that's the way it was for Herod, right? Herod had 10 wives, and he would kill them if he doubted their loyalty to him. He had multiple chil- children, multiple sons. Three of them he put to death because he thought they wanted his crown. Uh, as he was dying, he arrested a thousand nobles. He put them into an arena. And he ordered that they were to be executed at the moment of his death. So that there would be weeping in Israel when he died. Unfortunately, those orders weren't carried out. But the purpose of this is to show you the way he viewed the world. That you exist for me or you die. Now, sadly, I would think most of us have met people sort of like this. Maybe not quite as severe as Herod. uh, But some of you really are in significant, narcissistically abusive relationships. It might be at work. It might be friendships. It might even be at your home. And you really need help with this. You really need help to guide you through this because narcissists can be incredibly destructive. And what they love to do is they love to stir up crazy so that you feel crazy. And they love to make you feel like everything is your fault. And what you need is someone to help you walk through this. You need someone to help you get out of this. You need someone to help you make sense of the world once again. You need someone to help you restore your life. And we can talk about that at some other point, but let's go back to the text and let's think about Herod. Herod is the king of Israel. 
And as the king of Israel, he was supposed to be the shepherd to his people. He was supposed to lead his people into loving God and into loving their neighbor. And he was supposed to protect them and to provide for them. He was supposed to lead them and love them. But instead, what we saw Herod doing over and over again throughout his reign was abusing people and using people and killing them. And so this is the king, right, who, verse 3, when he hears of the birth of Jesus, is troubled. And he is troubled because what he sees in Jesus is a threat. And I think one of the strangest things about Christmas is that Christmas is a threat. That Christmas really is a threat to our autonomy. Because if this child that was born in Bethlehem really was the Christ, if this child really was the Savior and the King of the world, what that means is that you and I are not. What this means is that Jesus rules and reigns over everything, and that includes you and that includes me. It means that we must answer to him. It means that we must love him. It means that we must serve him. It means that we must obey him. It means that we must actually bow to him because he does not bow to us. And so Herod sets out, verse 13, to destroy the child. And in order to protect his power and his position, we see in verse 16, he became furious and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And what Christmas then meant to Herod was that the child must die so that I can reign. For Herod, Christmas meant murder. And I think, sadly, often that's the cry of our own hearts, right? I must reign. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it, and no one can tell me otherwise. And this is why, as your children grow up, at some point they will say to you, you're not the boss of me. Stop bossing me, right? Because they are their own king. And sadly, there's this thread of Herod that runs through all of our hearts. And all of us have places in our lives where we are constantly saying no to Jesus. We have places in our lives that we do not want God to enter. And we will fight to the death to keep him out. And for some of you, that's your work. For some of you, it's your addictions. For some of you, it's your sexuality. For some of you, it's your politics. For some of you, it's your comfort. For some of you, it's your children. For some of you, it's your money. For some of us, it's just the ability to admit that we are wrong. And we would rather die than admit that we were wrong. And we will fight Jesus to the death. And I think, sadly, we're often uh, kind of like dogs uh, what I mean by this is that dogs love their masters. They love being fed. They love playing fetch. They love having their bellies rubbed. And they love that leg to kind of, you know, go back and forth. They, they love going uh, for walks. And, but if you try to take that turkey leg uh, from that dog's mouth, his eyes will turn red and he will kill you. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think that's often how we engage God. Right? As long as he gives us what we want, tells us what we want to hear, comforts our needs, then we will love him and we will praise him. But if he does not, then it is game on. And we will fight him to the death. And Christmas says to us 
There is a king who has entered the world, and it is not you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, said it this way, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Christmas is an invitation to us to lay down our arms. But during the Advent season, what we recognize is that there is this tension in us. Because we really do want the war to end, but we just can't stop fighting him. As Frederick Dale Bruner says, he says, Our exaggerated ambitions, pretensions, self-centeredness, greed for position, grudge against God, our guile, and finally human cruelty and insensitivity, which are all fruit of our war with God, all these live still in us and must be contended with until the last judgment. Human nature is still the battleground between two great kings, Herod and the child. And Christmas serves as this invitation from God to stop fighting and to rest in him. Right, this is a rival. This is the rival's heart, one who is at war with God. And sadly, that heart resides in all of us. And so let's now take a look at the rival's heart, look at Christ, and look at his heart for the world. I want you to notice in verse 6. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what we see is that Jesus came to rule. He came to be a king. And I want you to notice the way of his rule. The way of his rule is to be a shepherd. Right? Herod was the king who used and abused and killed his people. Jesus is the king who comes to shepherd his people, to lead his people, to love his people, to know his people, to be with his people. He is the shepherd, the ruler, the king who has come to comfort and protect and provide and to serve. Historically, throughout the church, one of our favorite psalms has always been Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then that psalm goes on to promise that this shepherd is going to be a shepherd who protects us and who fights for us, who provides for us and defeats our enemies. And the shepherd who will lead us into his presence where he will feed us and set before our enemies this amazing meal. All right, it's the shepherd that is, who is the one that we all long for, someone who will be with us when we're afraid, someone who will welcome us, someone who will protect us, someone who will love us. And as you read the Bible and you move into the New Testament, you come to John chapter 10, where Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. He is a shepherd. He is a king who does not use and kill his people, but he is a shepherd who ironically lays his life down while his people kill him. And I think one of the things that is amazing about Jesus is that he enters the story of all the sorrow that is portrayed throughout the Bible. The Bible really is a book that is filled with sorrow. I mean, it's a hard book. 
And I think one of the reasons why the Bible is so filled with sorrow is because our lives are filled with sorrow. And we often talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures, and that's true. But he is also filled up with the scriptures, meaning that his life is the embodiment of the entire biblical narrative. Right? Think about Moses. Moses was born as a foreigner, right, in Egypt. He was born into a political situation where the Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of these refugees who had come into their land and they're now thriving in that land. And so Pharaoh uh, sets out to destroy them, right? And so as you open up the pages of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh says this, Behold the people of Israel, they're too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And so what does Pharaoh do? He then enslaves these people. He enslaves the Israelites. And then what he does is he commands all the midwives to kill all the Jewish boys who are going to be born. And so Moses, who was the great liberator of God's people, the prince of Egypt, uh, was born into a land that was weeping. And they were weeping because their sons were being killed. And this is why Matthew then says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. He's saying that Jesus was born into a land like Moses was born into a land that was weeping. And like Moses, who was born into a weeping land, he was born to lead the people out of their weeping into rejoicing. He was to lead them out of their slavery into freedom like Moses and Israel who were called out of the land of weeping, Jesus is called out to lead God's people from their weeping and into joy. And the pattern of sorrow just repeats itself throughout the Bible. And that's the point of the quote in verse 17 and 18 from Jeremiah. Then was fulfilled what the was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And this is a quote that comes from the exile when God's children are once again weeping because their sons are being killed in the exile into Babylon. And so what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the one who enters the sorrow of God's people. And I think that one of the things that's interesting about Christmas is that rarely do we think about this part of the birth narrative, right? I mean, I've never seen Matthew 2, 13 through 18 in a preschool Christmas pageant, right? All the, all the boys are killed. Um, yeah, rah, rah, die, right? And, uh, and I think that's probably because that's not what Christmas is about, right? I mean, Christmas is supposed to be about joyful angels and excited shepherds and generous wise men and beautiful babies and a young mother and father and all the friendly beasts uh, because it's the most wonderful time of the year, as Justin Bieber says, and chestnuts are roasting on the open fire and sugar cookies are being eaten by the family. But this part of the story, right, I think is an incredible part of the story. This part of the story is important because what it tells us is that Jesus was born into our, our tear-stained world where children really die, 
where countries really are at war, where terrorists really are striking fear, where families don't get along. This week, uh, I was looking through um, some quotes uh, from a book called Still, which is about a woman's memoir of having lost a child, Stephanie Page Cole. And she writes this, I don't think most people truly understand how much is lost when a baby dies. You don't just lose a baby. You also lose the one and two and 10 and 16 year old she would have become. You lose Christmas morning, loose teeth and first days of school. You just lose it all. And that's the world in which Jesus enters, one that is weeping, right? And that's one of the beautiful things about Christmas. That's one of the beautiful things about our God, that he enters into our world. And to avoid this part of the story is to actually miss the kindness of God. Because all of us are tempted to think that we have been handed over to the trauma of the fall. All of us think we have been handed over to the trauma of our war against God. But the birth of Jesus into this world that is full of sorrow, the birth of Jesus into a city that is weeping over violence and death is a birth that reminds us that we have not been forgotten by God. It reminds us that Jesus has borne our sorrow. Diane Langberg, in her beautiful and powerful book called The Suffering in the Heart of God, writes this. The crucified is the one most traumatized. He has borne the World Trade Center. He has carried the Iraq War, the destruction in Syria, the Rwandan massacres, the AIDS crisis, the poverty of our inner cities, and the abused and trafficked children. He was wounded for the sins of those who perpetuate such horrors. He has carried the griefs and sorrows of the multitudes who have suffered the natural disasters of this world, the earthquakes, the cyclones, the tsunamis. And he has borne our selfishness, our complacency, our love of success, our pride. He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He has been abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no part of any tragedy that he has not known or carried. He has done this so that none of us need face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and he will go with us. Isn't that not amazing? That Jesus has entered this world and he has wept with us. That Jesus has not abandoned us to it and like a good shepherd, he bears the burden of his flock. And he will return us from the weeping of the world to the joy of the Father. And he is the one who will give us everything we need. He is the one who will lead us through the darkness. He is the one who will defeat our enemies. He is the one who welcomes us into his presence. And he is the one who will finally wipe every tear and fill us with the joy of his presence as he feeds us with all of his good gifts as a good and loving Father. Let's pray.